targets, premium shooting targets and accessories. And now, over to your host. Well, hello and welcome to the Precision Shooting Podcast. My name's Rusty and this is episode number 33. With me tonight is uh, Andrew. How you doing? Not too bad, Rusty. And yourself? Yeah, good, mate. And over there's Greg. How you going, Rusty? Very good. Excellent. Well, we're back again, gentlemen. How have, how have your weeks been? Very, very busy. Yeah. Not filled with shooting. Good, good. So, fairly disappointing then. Yeah, somewhat. Mm, Greg, any any recovery from yours? Yeah, no, look, I, I, I snuck out a couple of times. Um, got out to just a small property near my joint and um, managed to drop a fox. And um, also another property another week and uh, got a little fellow deer. So, Do you ever get to work or is it just... No, this is weekend stuff. Oh, right. This is the benefit of having properties close to home, you know. It's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's so much easier. Yeah, nice. And so the six, six got a run. Yeah, six got a run. Six dropped that deer. So uh, it's officially, um, yeah, it's officially dropped. It's done. It's in. Yeah, so it's all blooded in. Any noticeable di- uh, notable distance? Or no, no, no. It was um, it was spotted at about seven hundred and fifty, but. Where it was wasn't actually on the land I had permission on yet, so I manoeuvred and waited for it, and yeah, the shot ended up being only at 70 metres. It was just sort of popped out the bushes in front of me, and yeah, it was all pretty straightforward. Yep. Mm. Probably not far enough that the stability issues would have caused a lot of problems, so... <laughs> yeah. yeah, probably went in sideways, but... Uh, more damage. Yeah, well, more damage. Got a good bleed-out canal. Went down pretty quick. So, yeah, nice. Yeah, all good. Good, good time. Well, I, I had a, a a fun but dismal results uh, hunting trip just the last few days. Got back uh, last night and uh, tried to uh, stalk some goats. And uh, yeah, now we uh, we stalked them, stalked them so well that we didn't find them. Um, saw plenty yeah. of, well, not plenty of uh, signs. We saw some signs. We they, they are there. There's just not a huge amount of them, and there's a mm. lot of scrub. So it was about five and a half thousand sort of acres worth of scrub and. I don't know, half a dozen, maybe ten goats that we, you know, to yeah. take a guess. Well, I mean, we, you know, we're aware there's goats on that property, and several have been caught, but uh, it's a lot of land to cover. Yeah, yeah, of, and goats, goats typically have a pretty big range. They roam yeah. quite a distance, so yeah, you've got to sort of cross mm. paths. Unlucky, that's hunting. Oh, that's that's part of the deal. I mean, we yeah. enjoyed it. The weather wasn't wasn't good. It was during the, you know, the, the pretty poor weather here in Adelaide, and um, so we we. Copped it a few times. We we got hit one morning pretty hard and uh, had to walk an hour back to camp, uh, completely drenched, which was great fun. And what I realised is from our Flinders trip, Greg, that I remembered um, that we'd I'd busted my boots up in Flinders. They were, ah. they were no good after Flinders. I remembered that driving down to the property. Yes, that's how um, it works. Yeah, so I I was running around in sort of sand shoes, um, yep, yep. <laughs> which was not ideal. But I mean, it's you know the the terrain was you know it would have been good to do some long range shooting, but it's so thick that you know you can get yeah. some high points where you get some good vantage, but you know even you, you barely would see anything from up yeah. there in terms of game. Yeah, Too much concealment. Very yeah. very lucky to see something actually exposed itself enough to, to get a shot in. Yeah, long enough to, to get a crack on it, but a uh, be, beautiful place to be in. Yeah, and that's you got to you got to get out there and get a bit of intel on, on new land, don't you? Yeah, we set, set some laid out. game cameras up. So, you know, we should be able to get confirmation that that there was um, there's something there. I mean, <clears throat> look, with my very limited knowledge of, of deer, there was some, some rub marks, but, you know, I, I don't know if it was deer. I'm not going to... Uh, get too excited at this stage, but we thought we'd throw the game cameras up around that sort of area mm. and see what results come from that. So hopefully we'll have a nice photo of a, a red staring at the camera. That'd be great, but uh, yeah. not not holding my breath for that. Yeah, and certainly this is not the, the best time of the year. You know, you, you're around the Easter mark is when they tend to start going off. Um, so yeah. if you know what's there, you'll be prepared, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Well, something to look forward to. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm guessing it was probably just a... It's probably just some sort of insect that rubs itself against the bark, and you know we're getting all these hopes up for nothing. But oh, well, that's uh, that's hunting, I guess. Um, and then we broke our tent, and then anyway, you know, then yogurt went everywhere through the esky. It was it was one of those trips. Just uh, it was good fun, but everything didn't quite go to plan. So anyway, no flat tires or anything this time around, which is useful. So and you weren't at work, so mm. this is a. Uh, 
Well, I guess technically I was, but anyway, no, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. You're right. Um, and then uh, yeah, we've got uh, what else we got coming out? We're going to a gun shop tomorrow night to do a info info session on uh, long range shooting, which should be a bit of fun. Um, there's meant to be a few people coming, so it'll be good. We'll yeah. just talk to whoever's there. You coming along, Greg? Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. come down. Cool. Um, yeah, definitely interest is growing, isn't it? You know, there's mm. more and more interest in these events that you're setting up, and it's good to see. It's great to see the um mm. what's just happened, and yeah, this podcast will go out probably a week after, but the uh, the NT guys ran their their finale, a two day shoot up there, and mm-hmm. some of those stages looked pretty uh, pretty good. It was I don't know if you guys saw any photos from it. Yeah, I had a look at the photos. Certainly, they had a good turnout too. So, yeah, yeah, twenty something sort of people, which I know they normally sort of hover around the six or eight people mark. So good, you know, guys from all over the country there. Um, we're going to get Butters uh, on, and, and I reckon one of the guys who uh, competed um, uh, as well, and have a bit of a chat to them. So they're going to give us a stage by stage and tell us everything that went on and all the goss, which should be good fun. But they had one stage which. Which I know Butters said was was one of the favourites, and believe it or not, it was a hundred meter, um, sh- uh, hundred meter stage shot on paper. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, not not what you would predict would be the favourite stage for the weekend, and and apparently it was it was really really good. Really. Oh, that'll be interesting. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's a good sign, I think, that guys are prepared to travel countrywide for mm. these kind of shoots. You know, it's a you know encourages people to you know to actually program the shoots and, and organise them. Yeah, you know, knowing they're going to get good turnout. So, yeah, it's, no, it was wonderful to see. I was, I was disappointed not to be able to get up there, but you now hopefully we can in in future. Um, so anyway, so that'll that'll be coming up in a episode or two, um, and hopefully we'll we'll tell more about that particular stage and better let the guys who shot it and designed it talk about it rather than us who don't really. Yeah, you know, we saw a photo, mm. which is not the smartest thing to base it on. So anyway, this uh, this episode we. Um, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Brian Litz book, The Modern Advancements in Long Range Shooting. Um, we tried to do this podcast a few weeks ago, and uh, somehow uh, Andrew's mic wasn't recording. So um, it is recording now. I've just had a look. Still still on deck. Um, so we're going we're gonna to have another sort of chat about the book and sort of the areas we found of interest and that sort of thing. Um, before we do that, it looks like we're going to have some more giveaways to uh, to send out as well shortly. We finished up our last uh, last giveaways from Precision Rifle Products, and uh, yeah, the last one got sent off today. So that, uh, but we've been contacted by some guys who want to give some more gear or gear away. So news up on that. Uh, we we'll have to think of some sort of competition or something, some way to give that away. Anyway, if you're listening, you have got an idea of how we can do that. That'll be. Good. I won't accept emails that just say "give it to me." <laughs> um, might one. Anyway, it'd be <laughs> maybe. I like the like the audacity of doing that. Very good. So, do you guys uh, enjoy the book? I did. I, I said I haven't read it from start to finish, like I think you have, Rusty. But um, mm-hmm. I have sort of used it as a bit of a reference material, which I've kept on my loading bench. Um, admittedly, I haven't got to it as much as I would have liked. Yep. Um, there's a few few areas in there that are of sort of more interest than others to me. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think it's a pretty interesting book. What's well, that sort of book, isn't it? It's not a. It's not a. I mean, I have read it from start to finish, but only because I forced myself to. It. It is a. It is a, a book. I, I won't do that again. It's one to go back and look at a chapter and read the chapter and mm. sort of pick out what what is of interest. Um, uh, nice to see it. Um, holistically, the whole thing, but to go back now and reference it, it will be certainly chapter by chapter. What about yourself, Greg? You just do you read it, or you pay someone to read it for you? Yeah, no, I got it dictated to me and fed grapes at the same time. <laughs> but um, no, no, I had a read, and, and no, I really enjoyed it because um, more recently, it's probably the last six months, as you all know, I've sort of been buying stuff to improve my reloading. Yep. Um, and try and get better quality ammunition. I don't get to shoot much, but I get to play in the shed a lot. So that's been a good little project, and, and there's a really good section in here on advanced reloading. Um, mm. And they, they step through all, all the sort of you know main areas that help improve the quality of your ammunition you're making. And um, you know he backs up everything that he's talking about with you know real filtered data. And uh, for me, that was just like a confirmation of a lot of decisions I made, but also 
some areas that I was lacking. So I really enjoyed that, actually. Very good. What was your favourite? F- favourite part of that? Re-work? No, no, favourite type of grape. Oh, I like the red seedless. <laughs> good. Good. Um, so for those who haven't read a Applied Ballistics or a Brian Litt's book previously, um, I guess he he researches topics and presents the research, um, both the actual content of the research and what he what he does, the tests that are done, and then drawing conclusions from that and what the, the data finds. He writes in such a way that um, perhaps... If, if something was inconclusive, he'll say it is inconclusive. Mm. If something he felt didn't really represent what could have happened, he'll say that as well. He's very honest with his results and and he'll put forward a hypothesis of what he thinks will happen and then go to real-world testing. Mm. Um, but the yeah, the, it reads very well where you get the full picture of what he's covered. And a lot of the time um, there is reference in there that there is further testing to be done mm. or they uncover something that perhaps is having an effect on what they're trying to research and they say that they, the test doesn't allow for that parameter to be checked. So that will have to be done at another point to give some clarity around the book as well is it's, it's volume two in a series that is obviously going to be relatively long because so far they've got the, uh, the logo on the side of the book. And we're still on the letter A from Applied Ballistics. So obviously there's a fair, <laughs> Good few, observation. Books, yeah. fair few books to come. Um, so it's an ongoing research project. And, yeah, it's got some got some interesting stuff to it. Greg, do you want to sort of nominate a few of the topics there that are covered? Yeah, okay. So in, in general, uh, the parts look at uh, rifle bullet dispersion. So that's a, that's a common one that um, I sort of gets talked about um, in terms of you know, groups improving with distance. Um, also, the the next part is on advanced handloading and uh, it breaks it down into different elements of handloading and uh, looks at those, like, in, in a bit more detail with evidence. Um, and then he talks, uh, they do a bit of uh, a comparison on rangefinders across the board, doing a, a almost, uh, almost scientific analysis, I guess, uh, head-to-head comparison which is um, probably the only one of its kind um, so really it's probably the best comparison of rangefinders I think we've seen documented to date certainly you know comparing them all side by side I think you know if you you could probably search all those rangefinders and find information about them hmm. they're certainly not tested in the same way you know the consistency of you know the um, sort of the way in which the tests are conducted yeah. You would be guessing, but this it shows you directly and you know clearly what uh, what performs and how it performs. Yeah, and I think we'll hit you up a bit more on that in a minute, Andrew, because I haven't actually read that chapter. Um, but yeah, about the testing, I think it was pretty repeatable, and they used different quality targets and reflective targets and all this sort of thing. So yeah, yeah. sounded like a really good test. Uh, they got a section on rimfire ammunition, so I'm not sure of the nature of that. I've yeah, read that one. I, I have read that but one, but we'll, we'll get onto it later. No worries. So uh, that that's interesting because we've got a lot of rimfires out there. A lot of guys have got rimfire trainers, and 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 you know it's a, it's a relevant caliber. Even though um, you know we're usually talking long range, it's something that can be really useful on the range for practicing. Um, talk a bit more about aerodynamic drag modelling for ballistics. Uh, more on barrels, advancements in barrels technology. So that's always relevant, especially for me. Um, yeah, so that's that's sort of the general layout of the book. Um, so I don't know, Rusty, yeah. what you want to sort of hit up first? Well, start start at the top. You guys read the the topic on rifle bullet dispersion. I, I read with more interest the um, the topic on angular group convergence. Um, right. Because yep. for me, it had been a I guess a topic which you know it's been in the shooting media for years. Yep. Um, so do you want to clarify what that what that relates to? Well, I guess in in layman's terms, um, you know, there's been the claims, you know, throughout mm-hmm. the years that some rifles are more accurate at longer range than they are at closer range, um, and I guess you know the the theory is that some bullets don't, you know, stabilise or quote go to sleep until they've reached a certain distance. Greg's don't stabilise at all. Yeah, well, I mean that's just a fundamental issue there, but um, it's intentional. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know the the. The theory, and you know, there, there are people who are adamant that you know their their mm. rifle shoots more accurately at 300 meters than it does at 100 meters. Um, yep. 
and I think this is the first test I've seen which is actually conducted you know consistently repeatedly and it actually tests that theory yeah, um, yeah. it's not just a sort of a hearsay like oh you know I, I shot a you know shot a rock out in a paddock at 300 meters and I couldn't hit it at 100 or whatever it might be this actually quantifies um, mm. and, and actually tests the, the theory yeah it was a pretty incredible amount of tests too I've, I've forgotten how many how many was it it's like yeah, many yeah. many many tests to try and verify different calibers combinations and um, to try and replicate although they did experience convergence on like very very few instances yeah probably small enough you'd not enough it, to um, call yeah, a yeah fluke an anomaly, or anomaly yeah it's not repeatable it was not a trend by any means and uh, but yeah very very comprehensive yeah, over 70 tests done, yeah. Yeah. which is one of the, from what I remember, one of their most uh, extensive testing regimes. Yeah, and I think he collected data on what would be the most likely based on claims on on uh, what they, you know, guys were saying were actually converging. And I think he also put a, a, an offer out to the internet to uh, a challenge to, you know, show me. Show me your convergence. Mm. Mm. And I, I don't think he had any takers on that, did he, Rusty? So um, I, I was quite excited. I heard about this from the uh, Precision Rifle Media podcast, which was then the Precision Rifle podcast. Um, mm-hmm. And when um, Kirk talked to um, Brian about it, he spoke about it and he'd put it up on a particular forum as well. And I was very excited to hear it. Um, but, of course, the results weren't going to be published until they came out of the book. Uh, so slightly disappointed to hear that because it was one of those questions that I'd always sort of heard the the, the stories about. And you go, well, this will be interesting because it doesn't – to me, it didn't make sense. Mm. Um, yeah, same. I, I, I'd been a sceptic of that possibility that a rifle could be more accurate at longer range in that if a bullet, particularly if it's a stability issue, if it's not stable – it's mm. not going to get any more stable the further it goes out. It will get less stable, if anything, yeah. as, it dro- as it slows down. So for me, the theory didn't hold true, and I guess the the findings sort of verify that. Yeah, so so he put a call out to anyone that, that had a rifle that would do this, mm. and the, the situation was that if they could get themselves to Michigan and the rifle would actually do it he was using a shoot through target so a shoot through target at 100 meters that would then also print at 300 mm. and so that he would get results of both at the same time um and you could be aiming at the 100 you hit the 300 as well you'd be aiming at the 300 you hit 100 as well and so it they shot between both. They'd shot at 100, shot at 300, and vice versa. And so the idea was that, that anyone could come there and shoot and had, if the rifle displayed those properties under testing conditions, he would pay for their flights and accommodation, all that sort of gear. Mm. And he get silence I, and tumbleweeds, didn't he? I don't... No, one guy. One guy put his... I don't know if anyone... I don't believe anyone actually went there and did it. He certainly didn't have to pay for anyone. There was one guy who... Said he he swore by it. He said, "I have a rifle that does it. Can't get there, but I'll do my own testing," and did his own testing and found that it wasn't the case. When he shot at three hundred, he shot far better than he shot at a hundred. Yeah, but it's, the the results at a hundred when he was shooting at three hundred, the results on the hundred meter target improved. He said it was the best group he ever shot. Yep. So it was interesting to to hear that. And Brian provides a few ideas, but not clarifications around what perhaps is causing the times where it does happen. Um, he does sort of talk about it happening a couple of times in his testing, but within the the variation and certainly not repeatable and continuous. Mm. Mm. I mean, I guess, I guess short of um, testing this in a, you know, in a tunnel, you know, in an indoor environment, which I think there is a 300 yard range somewhere in the U S um, you know, from a machine rest. So there was basically no human intervention there. It, it's probably difficult to, absolutely mm, yeah. yeah empirically say this is the way it is but mm. i think there's enough if you testing do s- done on it 71 tests and two of them uh yeah sort of out of the ordinary you're probably thinking that the other 69 are probably on the ball mm. Mm, so it was it was interesting um to read that and it was yeah, i mean it's, it's definitely worth a read it's a really good chapter it's about 50 pages on it and it's real well worth well worth the time to read on that I think it's very interesting, particularly, well, especially if you're interested in that topic. 
So onto the the hand loading, Greg. That obviously sparked a nerve with you because you bought some stuff after reading that. Yeah, I did, and um, you know it kicks off talking about bullet trimming and pointing. Now that's something I've never really read anything about before. So that was that was a bit of an education because I think it was the pointing uh, shows some benefit in terms of BC. So uh, that that was a bit of news to me. Um, you know, I found that in, uh, quite interesting. Now you you. You were thinking about trying it in real world, weren't you, Andrew? Yeah, it's something I've been interested in for a you know, fairly long time. I, I mean, there's probably multiple options around now, but I'd always you know, read about the, the Widen um, pointing dies. And uh, offhand, I can't recall the exact uh, BC increases, but they were certainly noticeable. There was a noticeable percentage increase in ballistic coefficient over you know, with a pointed projectile over and straight out of the box projectile. And I guess, you know, just to clarify for people what that is, it, it's basically where they close the plat up and instead of having sort of a, a larger hollow tip on the projectile, it's closing it right up. So certainly if you're not, you know, using it for hunting, it's just purely for target shooting, um, it, I, I think it sort of the results indicate it's definitely a worthwhile D- does it not? Does it not make it more consistent as well when it's in its finish? Is that part of it? Yeah, well, I, I believe in conjunction with trimming the projectiles, it would certainly help. Um, okay. Because, you know, most people looked at uh, even really good quality projectiles like the burgers. Hmm. The very end of the plat is not perfectly even. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, How much effect that has, I, I think, is considered minimal um, mm-hmm. over, you know, like, I mean, if you're trying to look at a, a you know, BC percentage increase, I think the pointing is... Is probably the one that you know. Not a lot of guys necessarily uh, trim their projectiles, but a lot of them point them. So yeah, think, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, and there was two different results on that as well. The trimming didn't necessarily help, but it gave less SD. It was sort of a mixed bag. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to reread that section. Um, I, I guess from the from purely from the point of um, making each projectile more consistent. Hmm. Anything you can do to to make them more perfect, I guess, is likely to influence the uh, you know yeah. the standard deviation, which should therefore increase your accuracy. But absolutely, mm, and I know you bought. Oh, you're you're looking it up further, Greg. You're yeah, I was just looking through that chapter, and and um, yeah, trimming showing a consistent increase in BC, so sort of three point two. Trimming or pointing? Oh, sorry, pointing. Yep. Thank you. Um, Pointing is an increase in BC, and it did vary between different calibers and different projectiles. So, so there yeah. is some variance there. Um, uh, trimming's basically saying you, you, you're losing a average, a reduction in the average BC, um, mm-hmm. but your uniformity increases. So you're sort of trading off. Yeah. Whereas trimming, trimming gives you uniformity and BC increases. So that. Uh, sorry, pointing. Yeah, I said pointing, didn't I? Point, so, pointing gives you increases in yeah, BC. Oh, time yep. of brain in or not. But um, <laughs> yeah, so there's some real numbers there, some real benefit that you yeah. know is worth weighing up. Um, yeah, so that 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 was really interesting because that's not a technique that quite you know a lot of people do. Maybe a lot of the target shooters probably get into it, but um, sure, you don't often see people pointing or, or trimming bullets for that matter. Yeah, I'm not. I, I don't think the 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 short range bench rest guys generally do it. I, I certainly haven't seen it. I mean, I've attended a number of bench rest matches where generally people load at the range, you know, between relays, and I've seen guys just take the projectile straight out of the pack and load. Um, so I think it's one of those things that it's more relevant. They're, they're probably the not so range. interested in the BC of the no. There's no, more consistency. There's hence they use flat base projectiles and that yeah. sort of thing. Mm, so. Mm. Is is more of an F class style sort of yeah dis- I would imagine point. yeah yep. and yeah other long range disciplines certainly yeah yeah very good and um, Greg I know you ended up buying a flash hole um, deburrer yeah and uh, <laughs> this is where I got to fess up to not actually understanding a process properly but um, <laughs> when I was first showing you know when you you know you first learn reloading you know some people show you stuff and and yep. you, you know it's usually in a shed and you're like oh is that how it works and 
And I remember being shown how to do flash on it. It was just basically sticking a drill piece in the in the bottom. And I went, oh, okay, all right, noted. That's how I'll do it. And uh, and I'm reading on on flash holes in here and and how it can affect your standard deviation quite quite a bit dramatically. Actually, yeah. it's it's not small. It's it's really uh, a worthwhile process. And I was like, oh no, this is all about the inside burr, not just like burrs out to the side <laughs> of the flash hole. So I was like, oh, I guess like you know. Face palm, yep. uh, so yeah. Immediately rang, um, uh, immediately ordered a, a flash hole burr. Yep. Um, but yeah, definitely a worthwhile process, and that's all backed up by yeah solid results in this in this book. Yeah, mm. certainly more relevant with certain manufacturers, brass and others. Oh yeah, for for, for example, I got some Remy brass. Uh, definitely needed it. Um, but my lap obviously no, and um, Norma didn't need it either. I think that's probably the difference between a, a punched flash hole versus a drilled flash hole. You know, that's one of the reasons you pay more for the, the good brass. So. Yeah, correct, yeah. But, yeah, the the results really quite, I think, in terms of standard deviation for such a small process, if if you're running, that, I guess, that less um, or, or more common brass, I should say, um, it, it's really a worthwhile thing to add to mm. the process, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there is a bunch of stuff in that advanced hand-loading topic that is worth yeah. it's worth re- reading i'm not sure we do it justice sort of speaking about all of it cause, oh yeah yeah there's there's a f- lot more content in there that are worthwhile but but those two topics particularly um yeah worthwhile mentioning was there anything in there andrew that notable for you in that general uh, topic in the yeah the advanced hand loading side of things uh, yeah there's um neck tension which is uh, oh, I, yeah. I read the topic um, when i first got the book but for me, um, that's long been a, a topic which I sort of wanted to do further testing on myself in mm-hmm. regards to you know, most of my you know, accuracy-orientated rifles. I, I use neck bushing dies. Yep. Um, and I'd sort of, you know, wanted to do direct tests with you know whatever rifle, whether it be my six by forty-seven or three hundred eight or three hundred Win Mag mm. or all three, where you know vary nothing other than the neck tension. Now that's you know, sort of variable. I mean, uh, Reading do the bushing die yep. uh, the bushes in you know one thousand increments. So I sort of always sort of thought, well, what effect does it actually have? I've mm. never actually tested it on, as far as accuracy, um, standard deviation, velocity. Yep. So I guess it's um, it's a topic I've been very interested in. Haven't actually had a chance to act on yet. But <laughs> all in good time. Yeah. No, definitely worthwhile. Is good. Yeah, and there is a good table in there on desirable and, you know, what what's high for neck tension in terms of measured difference bet- um, uh, between your sized case and your loaded case. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's good just to see what optimals are and, and if, if, if um, you know, where you sit in that um, and if you can get consistency – uh, and that's where your bushing dies and stuff like that come in, and so you can start to sort of understand how all that picture comes together, and that's that's where this sort of chapter really does help a lot. Yeah, and I guess uh, for me, I've had an interest in annealing. Um, you know, I've got myself a decent annealing machine. Again, haven't had the chance to test it, but intend mm. to as far as, you know, obviously if you've got, say, a, a case that's been fired maybe two or three times with yep. no annealing, versus one that's been fired sort of once with no annealing versus once you know, a case that's been fired then annealed, yeah. what kind of difference and variation mm. you get. Because a lot of guys, myself included, generally, you know, if it's not something I'm super, super keen on, you know, getting the most, absolute most accuracy out of, I'll just have a yep. bucket of brass for a particular rifle. And some of it could have been fired a couple of times, some of it could have been fired once. Um, so that's a, a you know... A, Mm. A factor I wanted to test or will test. Yeah, yeah. There, you can compare. He has actually done a similar test. Yeah, I don't yeah. know whether you saw that, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see how your own results. Yeah, correlate. And that, mm. that would depend on the you know the brand of brass and all that sort of thing oh, as well. Yeah, so many variables. I think he's only done it on uh, two two three. So I think it was just know. more of to test the to demonstrate you know, what the theory. difference. Yeah, you know, is there a difference, and if there is, what kind of percentage difference you're talking about? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good. The um, I found that general research side of things really good as well, um, which is the th- the third part of the book, um, talking about the the laser range finders, which I know you really enjoyed, Andrew, um, and then the rimfire and the um, the modelling. 
um, and then barrels. So I guess we're, we're probably worthwhile going through each of those um, as well. So the the laser rangefinders, know, was a, a chapter you could sort of couldn't wait to get into. Yeah, I guess it was. It was. I was interested to see a, a what was going to be tested and b how it was tested, mm. and then obviously what the results showed. Yep. Um, you know, I've had an interest in quality rangefinders for for years, and that when I started shooting extended range, I sort of realised pretty quickly that off the shelf kind of rangefinders weren't really cutting the mustard. Mm. And unfortunately, especially then. Oh, yeah. absolutely, and and even now. You know, there's there's not a lot of rangefinders on the market within sort of reach of people that can accurately range past two thousand meters. Yep. Um so I'd sort of tried to do this this would have been a really handy book five, ten years ago. <laughs> um obviously some of these rangefinders weren't around. Most of them wouldn't be. Yeah. yeah. I guess it, it validates my sort of Your thoughts. Thoughts and conclusions that if you want a rangefinder that'll reliably range past you know sort of 2,000 yards or meters unfortunately there's no cheap option out of it um yeah spend the money yeah yeah and and they didn't actually test the specific model which i have they tested yep. the one up from it yep they, they they actually did they just put that in there just to annoy you but they didn't put it in there to annoy you well possibly so but i actually <laughs> selected the one i did for a reason and it's got a uh, a tighter beam convergence than Mm-hmm. On the laser than uh, than the PLRF fifteen, which they tested. The fifteen has a more powerful laser, so it will mm-hmm. range further. But my thoughts were, if you're trying to uh, to range a smaller target, the you know within reasonable shooting distances. I mean, sort of under twenty yeah. five hundred yards. Convergence is more important. Yeah, if you can be sure that you've hit the target you're looking at, rather than something before or after it. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we, we to clarify this this. Chapter a little bit more, it was actually done by Nick Vitablo, um, who does a, a huge amount in the world of lasers, uh, which is, yeah, probably the right man for the job. And they set up, what they've done here, I guess, this and this chapter is uh, fairly comprehensive, but it's also a, a fair introduction to a bigger concept where they've actually set parameters for laser rangefinder, uh, laser rangefinder testing. Uh, from from sort of here on forward, because there hasn't been a standard test that people can do on it. And so they've done things where they've used um, different percentage of reflectivity targets. And, and then they've. And size targets. And too. size targets mm. and at different distances and, and um, you know, to mimic um, animal fur and to mimic steel targets and, and other such things. And so they've sort of developed a test that. We'll get the data consistent from rangefinder to rangefinder, uh, and they've obviously thought about conditions being the fact that that can affect it. They've noted that they've kept, I reckon they kept light sensors running so they could sort of ensure that the light was similar the entire te- time through the test. Yeah, I think it was certainly. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's the most you know, exhaustive and consistent test on on lasers that I've been able to see. That I've seen, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, every manufacturer claims certain things, you know, with the the range capabilities of their rangefinders, and I'm sure, like most people that have had multiple rangefinders, very, very rarely do they live up to that. Yeah. Yeah, That might be a one in a million perfect conditions, perfect target. Yep. But Mm. it's not, you know, if if you're going to buy a rangefinder for hunting, you're going to want to know how does it perform on animals. Mm. Um, and those kind of tests, although I'm sure people had done them from time to time, there's no um, compiled you know, list of how they were tested, what was the results, you know, compared with you know, a number of other rangefinders under the same circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. So it was wonderful to set up parameters around this test to be able to be consistent with future testing as well, because I believe that's part of it, that they're going to continue to test rangefinders under these conditions to see where they fall. So one of the interesting results they did was a sort of dollar per metre result, which I think you've got there open, Greg, where they they sort of give you an indication of... um, Because we've all got... Well, two of us out of three have budgets to work with, and they've got to, you know you've got to get the best you can afford and, and breaking it down to a dollar per metre actually makes sense. So if you're only going to be needing it to go to 1,200 
meters. You can well, probably dollars per yard in this. I don't remember, um, but they no, will it's price per meter. Price per meter. Okay, so they will uh, give you an indication of what it is actually worth. So if you need to go out to a thousand, well, for this sort of price, it does a really good job. That that single table I'm looking at it currently as well. I think it's probably for you know somebody looking to buy a rangefinder is possibly mm. the most worthwhile uh, in that. It's a pretty exhaustive chapter. I mean, the, the yeah. amount of parameters he looks at and tests and factors they're you know using when they're testing these things. That one there alone, if you're going okay, well, I'm, now I'm getting into long range shooting. I'm going to shoot out to a mile tops, absolute tops. Yep. You know, I've got what are my options? Okay, these ones will do it. And then what's the the price per meter option? So yeah, that's right. Bang for buck. And then, then there's more data there you can go and see into. And then they've even got, you know, in the appendix, they've got further information on each individual test, which is really, yeah, really good, really comprehensive. So well worthwhile um, reading up, particularly, I mean, what's the book worth, 50 bucks or something? So if you're going to go buy a rangefinder and you're looking to spend, you know, 1000 to $2,000 worth, it's probably worthwhile mm. buying the book so yeah, you're really yeah. aware of where it sits. You'll be armed with all the latest information that's mm. available, you know. Well, I mean, it's it's one of those fields as well. There's new products coming out all the time. Yep. And uh, in this one, he did test the Sig Sauer Kilo 2400. Mm. Which from, isn't out yet, but I'd like for it to be. I, I think there's another model coming. There's a 2000 now, and I think you're right, there's, there's something a 3, else beyond. coming. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because it's got excellent bang for buck at, what, half a dollar a, a metre. And uh, is reaching well out there. It's, yeah. It's not a bad little package. Yeah. Yeah, and they've sort of come from nowhere, you know, as well as their uh, scopes, but sort of irrelevant mm. for this topic. But, yeah, you know, in another year's time, or next time uh, Brian Litz brings out another book, you know, there could be uh, sort of an appendix for Yeah, I'm hoping so. Editions, so. And I believe that's the, the way it is, is sort of looking to be working. So the chapter after that is all about rimfire ammunition. Which is probably, well, from what I've seen, one of the biggest extensive sort of tests of rimfire ammunition um, anywhere. Well, particularly given that uh, you know, they've gone to the, the trouble of actually calculating accurate and relevant ballistic coefficients for a lot of rimfire ammunition. Yeah. Yep. Which has been, you know, most guys have played around just shooting at rocks or whatever it might be, extended range, but it's, it's guesswork. And I guess what he's done here is reduce that guesswork as far as you know this information has been available for centerfire projectiles for a long time but i haven't seen a an exhaustive list like he has here yeah i, I should say in terms of the sort of one of the most comprehensive tests based around sort of shooting rim fires at extended ranges yeah i mean they did what 84 different types of ammunition yeah and i think um I don't have my book open to that particular table at the moment, but uh, there's some interesting things in there regarding long-range performance which, mm. uh, of high velocity, high velocity versus, I guess, standard velocity, which in some cases can be subsonic. And this is the this is the point that I was going to sort of bring up because I'd always been told, and not being a big rimfire guy, I enjoy shooting them, but and wanting to get into it a little bit more, I'd been told by a few guys that should run high velocity so you get your muzzle velocity up so that you you, know, you can make the distances. And perhaps the information in this book contradicts that. Yeah, I think, you know, I guess from an uneducated sort of opinion... You know, Makes sense, you, doesn't you, it? The faster the better. Mm. And I think you've got to look at application. I mean, if you're trying to shoot game, you want to hit them with as much you know energy as you can. Now, yep. normally, you're not going to use a rimfire for extended range hunting... Certainly, yeah, but um, I mean, yeah, but my my twenty two trainer is set up to to you know ideally shoot two hundred to three hundred plus meters. Yeah, absolutely. And but you're not generally going to be hunting, you know, shooting rabbits or whatever. I mean, you could absolutely. Yeah, no, not not ideally. No, no I mean, you, you just, your energy and your velocity of any rimfire mm. load is going to be sort of dwindling. But uh, certainly, yeah, I found the conclusions interesting, and in that you know it sort of indicates that you quite possibly better starting with a, a lower velocity round. Yeah, because you won't have that sort of potential for any sort of disturbance through as you go through that sort of supersonic back to subsonic barrier. 
Um, and and I was going to say, so people had told me that, so I was running some stuff, and then we we often shoot where we do a lot of the the work with southern shooters. We shoot, and we've got a target set up about two hundred and twenty meters, and yeah, we we get people to you know have a crack on the twenty two with it. We're using CCI standards, so they're you know they're running subsonic, and actually surprisingly can be quite consistent with it, and so that sort of got me thinking. Well, maybe the subsonics are quite okay, and then this came out and read it and went, right, mm-hmm. that, that backs up what I've been finding, that that's actually been more consistent than using the high velocity at that sort of extended ranges. So um, I will have to uh, spend some time getting into that a bit more. Absolutely. It'd be, um, I guess uh, it'd be nice to have the availability of ammunition, which he's tested here. I'm just looking through this table. He's, he's tested a lot. Um a lot of which we probably can't really readily access here, but there's certainly enough data that, that backs up the, the theory of start slow and mm. better. Yeah, and I'm, I'm certainly there's there's quite a few options for 22 rimfire ammo here now, um, particularly with Ely being now much yeah. more present. Yep. So on from, from that, did you guys read much on the aerodynamic drag modelling for ballistics? I haven't gone into that in depth, so I'll leave that one to Greg. I'm going to palm it to Sam. <laughs> I didn't read it either. Ran out I, of grapes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I guess it, look, it, it talks a fair bit about the custom drag side of things. And the more and more people are pushing distances, the more required the custom drag side of things are. I, I did read it. Uh, I read it a little while ago, and I don't recall a huge amount. It didn't leave me with a, a massive impression of, oh, I've got to go change everything I'm doing, um, like some other chapters maybe did. Uh, but it's it's an interesting topic to talking about custom drag curves, yeah. and I certainly do run some custom drag curves um, through AB. Um, yeah, so that was it was a good topic. Um, but so more of a justification, more of a justification for the custom drag curves and information about it. Yeah, yeah. just understanding yeah. how it how it differs from the like G seven that that yeah. sort of yep yep. And then uh, chapter eleven, the last one was uh, advancements in barrel technology. Did you guys read that at all? I did, and it's uh, it's been a topic which I mean I've built you know, a lot of rifles, and it's a topic which I'm interested in in it. I haven't used any carbon-wrapped barrels. Yeah, well, that was the, the premise of the chapter, wasn't mm. it, really, looking at the carbon carbon fibre side of things? Yeah, and I mean, the, the technology and the techniques that are used in carbon wrapping now compared to where they were at, say, maybe 20 years ago, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Christensen Arms were one of the earlier... Early adopters. Yeah, yeah. and I think that the methods they use now are, well, certainly they've evolved... As far as the type of uh, carbon it's used and how it's laid up, interestingly enough, though that the Christians and Arms and Proof are the two major contributors to the, the carbon fibre barrel side of things, and they both use the the opposite manner in doing so. Um, there's yeah. sort of two different ways to do it, and they both do different ways. Yeah, so yeah, I think I mean I haven't actually used them, but certainly the the Proof barrels are. Well, definitely getting traction as far as mm. guys are using them, getting good results. I saw, um, I reckon it was today, I saw, I reckon it Sniper's Hide got in a proof barrel for the Ruger Precision Rifle. So proof of, of producing um, straight Pre- pre-fit, fit, barrels, pre-fit yeah. barrels for the Rugers, which are, yeah, really interesting. So if uh, if Greg will give me a loan, I might hook one of them up in due course. Um, that would be kind of good to see what they go for. They go like on one, I get to play with a um, a carbon fiber barrel, and two, it's a nice easy changeover for the Ruger. So with these carbon, because I haven't read the chapter, but with these carbon fiber barrels, do they behave differently than a standard barrel in terms of like harmonics, or is are they run like a stiff barrel, or are they? Uh, is there any commentary on that sort of behaviour? Is it, you know, like harmonic harmonics for when you're doing your load development and those yeah, sorts of things? I mean, they certainly have characteristics of their own in that mm. regard. Mm. Um, it's it's one of those things I, I'd always wondered, um, you know, obviously for the same weight, they're a lot more, a lot stiffer. Yeah. Than, you know, if you would take a barrel well, that, that weighed, say, four pounds for the barrel. Because yeah. that's what I'm thinking. You know, you're going to get a... A, like a hunter-style barrel weight-wise and get an almost varmint barrel-type performance out of it. 
because it's well, that's, shrouded. Yeah, yeah. that certainly well has always been the theory, and you know why people have done it: reduce weight and and keep your rigidity there, rather than having a you know a thin little you know soda straw barrel with conventional barrels. It'd be yeah, interesting that- to. Test it out, yeah. Yeah, and, and so there's some good tests in there, and they didn't um, – I didn't sort of leave the, the chapter going, right, I'm getting rid of all my barrels and getting carbon fibre on everything. Yeah. But it it looked like it quantified some, some stuff, you yeah, know, yeah. And, and so you thought, okay, well, these these are actual – yeah, there are some benefits to them in some aspects, and perhaps mm. some aspects they're not revolutionary, Um but they certainly have some attributes that are, are desirable. They're obviously the weight side of things. They're, the way they disperse heat perhaps is increased. Mm. There was another another option in there, which is a straight jacket barrel system, which is where you take a standard barrel and then effectively they put a shroud on it and then fill that internal space and fill it up and create a very stiff barrel. Yeah, uh, vibration dampening or harmonic dampening. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and they performed exceptionally well in some of the tests. Yeah, so right. but of course the cost is up there because you've yeah. got your you've got your standard barrel and then you've got Plus, that done yeah. to it. So that it was expensive. But what they they did actually sort of put some information in there, although I don't believe it was a, a test, it was done sort of anecdotally where they people had got an additional life out of their barrels, the barrels they thought was was gone and, mm-hmm. and done, they then put one of these straight jacket uh, barrel systems on it and it has become, it's gone back to as good as it ever was, if not perhaps better. Yeah, right. So, you know, I guess when you do that, if you're going to get double the life out of the, it, perhaps the, the, the cost is negated. Yeah, lifetime think, costs. Yeah, yeah, that could be really dependent, I think, because, you know, what determines a barrel's life as far as is it worn out? Mm. Obviously, you know, throat erosion and erosion of the rifling, generally speaking. So I don't know whether that's necessarily going to be, you know, it can't Im- change that aspect of the barrel. However, it can probably change the harmonics, like sort of, mm. I guess, deaden the harmonics of it, if you like. So it can still shoot quite well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you look, I've seen, seen rifles with really well-worn throats where the the rifling is nowhere near. There's no way you could possibly see the projectile near the rifling. It's that worn, and yet they still shoot accurately. Yep. So possibly that mm. would be the reason. Obviously, you know, the, the jacket system can't uh, can't affect the life of the Into, rifling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, anyway, so it was, it was good. It was a good chapter, um, and I would, if the opportunity got presented to get my hands on a, Carbon fiber barrel. I'd love to spend some time with it, particularly on like a, a PRS style gun. Yeah. So we we looking actually. for weight saving and, and yeah. maneuverability. I know that Bear from uh, from NT, who's been on the podcast before, he uh, was intending to get a proof research barrel at some point soon. So we shall await his report um, and see mm. what see what he says, both in performance but also in sort of functionality. Yeah, I think if you if you've got a rifle that the weight is a big consideration, mm. then I would you know, going down that option. Yes, it's more expensive, but I think it's a considerably more desirable option than going a lighter profile conventional barrel. Yeah, yeah, it would be it would be interesting. So it gives good good results in that test, but you know, one of those ones you you, you run to there was multiple stages they did results, and so you really want to take that into account. By the way, just for um, covering it off properly, that was done by Calzant from um, Precision uh, Precision Rifle Blog online. So he did the barrel test uh, side oh, of things. Okay. So yep. it's actually really good to see other contributors involved in the testing, and and they each have their own different style of writing, but they still followed the process that they needed to to, to get um, appropriate data back. Hmm. And so in the back of the books, there is. Um, any ballistic formulas they referenced, and also statistics, the full breakdown of the laser rangefinder performance, and of course the bullet library that makes their way. So all the sort of the lits testing they've done on G7 BCs, or G7 and G1 BCs uh, that they've you know sort of building that that database up. So there's another stack of well huge amount of pages of that testing done as well. So it's a really it's a good one to chuck in the reloading room, chuck on the shelf, particularly for that advanced hand loading side of things but some of the general interest topics are well worthwhile um i enjoyed it anyway i'll put it that way 
Yeah, I think it's a it's a book that um, whilst well, I find myself referencing, it's not one mm. you just read and then put away. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not a novel. You, well, I mean, you said you read it from start to finish, but it's a it's a very well set out reference manual. I sort of thought. I mean, yeah, it's it's good to. I, I liked reading it start to finish to get a a perspective of the whole lot. So touch on each, and then from here on in, yeah, if someone's talking about um, fill capacity, fill ratio, I'll go to that chapter and look into it and, and sort of get some more information about it. It's certainly not a not a book for somebody who is is just starting out. I think it's probably a, the information there is maybe a little too advanced for somebody who's never reloaded, for example. But certainly, my thoughts on it are if you've if you have a basic understanding of ballistics and a basic understanding of hand loading, this is some really valuable information there. It's not to me. It wasn't. It's not laid out that you have to be, you know, a, a rocket scientist to understand it. Yeah. He. he the information he puts there is quite detailed, but it's makes sense and it's it's laid out logically. I think I'd agree. Uh, like the you know, if you're just starting out, perhaps uh, if you do want to get your your teeth into some lit books, there's other ones that perhaps are more beneficial if you're just starting the long range side of things. But this is yeah you know, one of those ones I'd get in due course to to have as reference. Uh, oh, as with yeah, the absolutely. other, the previous version, volume two, which I've sort of handed off to someone at the moment to read up on. Um, told him to definitely read the the topic of twist, twist rates. That was probably the most important part to read up on. You loaned that one to Greg, did you? Or? That That's probably something in hindsight I should have done. But, you know, anyway, we, we all make mistakes. So. so where can someone buy one of these uh, uh, books? We, we picked them up from Huntsman Firearms. So that's always a... a yep, those boys always have looked after us, and I'm sure they, look, well, they looked after a lot of people. So good to get in touch with them. And more importantly, they have things in stock generally too. Yes. So. <laughs> this helps. This helps always the battle. So one thing that I was going to bring up, now this is obviously Applied Ballistics books, and I think probably all three of us run Applied Ballistics software, is the release of some software that happened a little while ago from Desert Tech, which is the Tracehole software. Now I've downloaded it and I've started playing with it, but I'm, have you guys used it at all? Not at all. No, I've, I've just me. seen briefly you had it on your tablet and I've you know, read a bit of information about yep. it. So I, I'm certainly not going to cover off on it now because I, I haven't done a justice playing with it. I'd be really interested to hear from anyone who is running it, who has used it more extensively than I have, to see what it's like. I'd be really interested if you've done a comparison between AB and uh, Tracel, uh, see what the data turns out like. But, but those who are just using it, I'd be keen to hear from you as to what features you like, what it does well, what it doesn't do well. Um, always curious to see what's out there. In in regards to to speed as well as uh, accuracy as well, I'd be yeah. quite interested to see. I mean, often, you know, particularly in a hunting situation, your time is of the essence. So if you get a an option that may be quickest hmm. and give still give you the accuracy, yeah, I'd be interested to see. Yeah, looks absolutely. good. Mm, so it's an interesting, uh, interesting interface. So anyway, it'd be great to great to hear on that. Um, you know, it's one of those things I'm pretty happy with the, the software I'm using at the moment. It take a lot to, to move away from that, but I'm always intrigued what is out there and always think it's fair to test everything that is. Hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Anyway, so guys, thanks uh, very much for listening. Thanks to you gentlemen for coming in and talking about a, uh, a pretty exciting book and hopefully those who we've piqued interest with will pick up a copy and they'll be able to... Uh, yeah, discuss it further and share their thoughts. If you have read the book and there's anything you think was worth noting, and let us know, and we'll go back and sort of t- brush up on it and bring it back up with any of the points you raise. And uh, hopefully, we'll be having another competition to announce with you guys shortly. So uh, anyway, we'll um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a chat about a few other interesting topics. Anyway, happy shooting! Cheers. We'll catch you again. Thanks for listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast. To continue the discussion, check out our Facebook page. And for more information, head to our website, www.precisionshootingpodcast.com.au. This episode was brought to you by STS Steel Targets, premium shooting targets and accessories.